This week on the Cameron Journal podcast, we're talking the Ukraine scandal, we're talking Brexit, and a handful of stories that I, of course, did not get to last week when all of this stuff was breaking. So, strap in, this is the Cameron Journal podcast. This is the Cameron Journal podcast. It's a place where we talk about important things. It's a place where we bring a little slice of the news to you. It's a place where we do important things, have important conversations. It's also things that I like to talk about. My name is Cameron Cowan, and this is the Cameron Journal Podcast. Happy Saturday, everyone. My name is Cameron Cowan. This is the Cameron Journal Podcast. I wanted to make a couple of personal and programming notes. Um... This week has been a little tough for me because um, I talked a couple weeks ago about new girlfriend, all this sort of thing. Um, some things happened around us looking at the possibility of moving in together and we broke up like two days ago. So I've been in a little bit of a daze this week. So if I sound a little off, or not fully engaged as I normally am this week. Um, that would be why it's uh, for a variety of reasons. It's super personal. I'm not going to go into the gory details, um, especially because I'm, I'm kind of tired of talking about it. I've talked to my friends about it. I spent like an hour journaling about it today. It's been on my mind. So, um, and this isn't that, that kind of show anyway. So, it sucks in life when things don't work out, when you think you finally found somebody. I haven't dated in almost a decade until this relationship, so um, I was really um, out of practice a little bit. Um, not quite sure how I'd handle myself in my current, more emotionally mature situation. Um, and I found out I still wasn't, uh, still wasn't ready for a lot of stuff. Um, that was a fascinating journey, lesson learned. Um, yeah, we'll definitely be taking a break far away from the dating life for a while. Um, I definitely deleted all my dating apps pretty much immediately um, afterwards and was like, ooh, no, not for a while. Um, special programming note, um, as a result of, um, everything, I am still moving. <laughs> um, yeah, so, uh, I am supposed to move the week of the 28th. Um, so sometime so I can be into my new place by November 1st, the old people are like moving out on the 28th and I'm supposed to be, um, out of here pretty soon after the first. So there is not going to be a podcast for, um, Saturday, October, or I'm sorry, Saturday, November 2nd, there will be no podcast. Um, 
I think there will be one next week for October the 26th. If not, because I'm packing or trying to get me to move, I, I think I'll be okay because I can't really pack or do anything until um, the people downstairs move because I'm pretty much just picking up one thing from my apartment upstairs, taking it downstairs, putting it down and just repeating that process over and over again. I'm not really packing. I sh you should have a podcast next week on, on October 26th. If for some reason I can't make that, I will let you know on Twitter. But as far as I know, the only day we should miss is November 2nd because I will probably be super busy trying to um, fit the whole house together, rehang all the curtains, which I'll have to come down, all the crazy things one has to do with moving, even though I'm only moving... 25 feet um it's still a lot even when you're moving only 25 feet so just know there will not be a podcast on november 2nd um i am trying to get my produced episodes done i have a whole bunch of them that are written i just need to grab audio and record them and so um hopefully over the next week or so as i get that taken care of and get that sorted i will be able to at least have a produced episode for you that week for you to listen to in the meantime even though we won't have the weekly news podcast so um yeah so i appreciate you guys sticking with me um if you're listening to this, you probably already have found me on a platform, but I want to let you know that um, I'm adding new platforms for my podcast to be on all the time. So right now we're on Google, we're on Apple, we're on Spotify, we're on Pocket Cast, we're on OpenCast. Um, if you need to like see if your favorite platform is on yet or you're listening to me on a platform that you're not a favorite of and you want to move to a different platform whatever have you um cameronjournal.com um just uh visit me there and um click on the podcast it's right in the top nav navigation menu and i have all the platforms um listed that i'm on obviously the most popular being google apple and spotify which we are all which i'm on so um great chance to find me and have a listen um to the podcast so uh yeah so that's that's a great um a great thing so uh yeah so that's kind of the the home for all of that sort of thing if you uh, meet a friend and you're trying to let them know about the podcast and i hope you do um point them to that page as well um it's a great way to just find their favorite their favorite platform um the next platform i'm going to try to be on is stitcher um, that's a pretty popular podcast platform, so I'm going to try to make sure that I get on, on Stitcher here soon, because I know a lot of people use that. So, it's it's fun to <clears throat> regrow this. Um, when I had the old uh, the Cameron Cowan Show talk show, I was using a different podcast uh, distribution uh, company, and back then... Spotify started hosting podcasts about the time I closed the talk show three years ago, almost three years ago. Actually, this November, it'll be three years. <clears throat> um, so there was basically only two. It was Google Play and Apple, and that was it. If you, that was pretty, if you were, if people were listening to podcasts, that was where they listened to them on. 
taking a drink. My throat gets dry doing this. Um, so, um, I think Stitcher, all these other platforms had just started to come out. And so for me, when I wanted to be on other platforms, I actually had to upload episodes to other platforms manually. So Mixcloud wanted to host podcasts and they had emailed me about bringing the talk show over there. SoundCloud wanted to do podcasts. They had contacted me about bringing the show. Um, And uh, so like different, you know, those all, all these platforms, the thing I love about Anchor, and I I don't run an ad for them, I'm just putting out that's who I use, is they do it all automatically. So literally, I upload the episode to them, and it propagates itself to all these different platforms. And there are, I mean, I'm on nine. That's how many different podcast platforms there are. So way different. It's amazing what a difference of three years makes between how I distributed the Cameron Cowan show and how I distribute this podcast. So, um... Yeah, so it was it was it was good. So, all right, enough housekeeping, enough about that. We've been at it for almost ten minutes. Um, let's jump into uh, the news. I want to start with <clears throat> some fun stuff. Um, some stories that I didn't get to um, last week. Um, one of them has to do with housing, and here it is. So. On Aussie.com, I how the how, housing and the housing crisis is something that <clears throat> I have been focused on <clears throat> not only for my own self because um, of my own like needs, issues, and concerns with housing because I'm an artist. Housing is one of my biggest bills so I'm always looking for like cheap inexpensive you know anytime I move I have to look for cheap inexpensive housing I don't have a high paying job obviously because I do this so and I'm not married (laughs) nor getting married anytime soon um and uh sensitive subject right now and um uh housing issue and policy has been something very near and dear to my heart those that have known me personally I've not talked about this a lot um, in this latest incarnation of the podcast I worked at a trade association of landlords for a while so I am I've really taken time to understand the housing market and landlords especially in the Seattle area which was a super red hot housing market second only to San Francisco for a few years um and uh, so I, I understand a lot about housing policy. Housing policy very much concerns me. One of the biggest problems in America today is the the lack of available housing. For-profit developers, it's only profitable for them to build housing with luxury price tags because there is no money at the bottom end of the market. Um older already paid for depreciated housing is what the bot- is what's, what's available at the bottom of the market and there is not enough of it um this is especially true because we don't have as many um married people as we used to which expands the need for housing if you have a married couple that's two people occupying one structure the divorce rate is 50 percent. there aren't as people are not getting married in the same rates they used to which means people are 
there's more people looking for a limited supply of housing. Um, And for the last decade, we have been in a housing crisis as the, you know, second and third cohorts of millennials have graduated college, come out into the marketplace and started looking for housing. Many of us found that between, you know, a car payment and student loans and housing, given what jobs were paying, there was just nothing available. San Francisco has gotten famous for people living in box trucks, in tents, all sorts of things. This also has generated a homeless problem. Now, the homeless crisis as such, it kind of peaked at about 1.5 million people right after the recession. It has declined over the last 10 years um, it, as, you know, people got housing, found jobs, got themselves out of homelessness to about 500,000 people nationwide. Now, that number is probably higher because it's it's based on what's called a single night count. So how they research that number is they go out and they... Um, homeless shelters and whatnot will go out to the streets and they will count people on a single night and then they'll say okay this is how many homeless people we have now if someone had just gotten housing that day and wasn't there or got homeless the next day they missed the count so the number of homeless people is far higher also people that are not on the streets do not get counted so people that are couch surfing don't have housing but are living with friends living with relatives whatever have you those don't count towards homeless because they don't they don't live on the street and therefore are not counted if we the count for people that do not have their own housing that they pay for that they can call their own if you counted all those people that number would be higher now one of the reasons why i think this is important is because housing has gotten, or I'm sorry, home housing has gotten more crunched, which has caused more homelessness. Homelessness has gotten more visible. So for a lot of people, they don't understand the housing crisis in and around major cities. One of the reasons there's a housing crisis in major cities is because that's where the economic engine of the country is. It's not in the Midwest. It's not in rural areas. The factories have gone. The economics have moved on. Economic progress is happening in and around major cities. This has caused people to move in major cities. Demand goes up. Supply stays the same. Guess what happens? So, um, this has led to a dramatic increase in the visibility of homeless people because there are far fewer places for them to go. The super cheap housing where they might have been able to work a small job or survive on disability or social security, those places are gone. Places that were once six, seven, eight hundred dollars are now fifteen hundred, eighteen hundred dollars in extreme cases. And if you're in San Francisco, it can be even more. <clears throat> if you're in greater New York area, it can be even more. And uh, so this has caused homeless people who oftentimes don't have anywhere to go to move in all sorts of odd places. When I was commuting in and around Seattle, it was not uncommon to drive by the borrow pit of an of I-5 and see a homeless camp encampment. Um, any green grass along where an interstate was... W- became tent camping villages. There are, I think, at least two 
run managed with like a board, a president, rules, regulations, all this type of thing, like tent cities in the Seattle area where people have like lived together. They've organized themselves like a, a town because the housing crisis is so bad. And there are others throughout the country. There are several more in California. I, there's at least one or two in San Francisco. Outside of LA, there's a whole like homeless transient town they've built out in the desert that has its own like town council and everything. So people, no matter what conditions of life they may come from, you know, organize themselves. And this has, th this whole process with housing and housing crisis has exposed how we need to radically rethink housing in this country, which all that leads me to this story of um, a quick fix for the housing crisis. Granny Flats. Here's what the story says. For years... Steve Alejos felt like he was shouting into a void. <clears throat> he owned a company that specialized in building small homes, accessory dwelling units, or ADUs, on people's property. He was convinced they offered a path to building affordable homes fast, yet red tape made the construction of such units painfully difficult for builders. That dam opened in early 2017 when his state of California passed legislation that loosened rates to build ADUs, also chiefly called granny flats, in-law units or casitas. Today, Vallejos has built nearly 200 units in the Bay Area and runs a company that expects to assemble 1,400 prefabricated off-site kits for ADU construction across Northern California next year. They're a quick fix that Vallejos calls the low-hanging fruit of affordable housing policy. It's one that's now catching on across the country that faces an estimated shortfall of 7 million rental units for low-income renters, according to the National Low-Income Housing Coalition. Developers argue that complicated regulatory process make construction of traditional houses onerous, costly, and lengthy. In some California cities, for instance, it can take four years to secure permits and cost more than $150,000 per unit in development fees alone. In several cities, single-family zoning laws allow only for the construction of detached single-family homes on residential land, preventing the building of apartment buildings, senior housing, student housing, and multi-unit low-income housing. Those with a yes-in-my-backyard YIMBY philosophy argue for boosting building density in cities with skyrocketing rents and swelling homelessness counts, while NIMBYs, not in my backyard, oppose reforms they worry could erode neighborhood character and decrease local autonomy. <clears throat> but more cities are now turning to these granny flats as a quick housing solution that avoids political scrum. Because ADUs can be legal within a single-family zone, Homeowners and builders can bring new units onto the market without the need to fight zoning rules. At the same time, community members retain control and don't need to purchase additional land to convert a room or build from scratch. California's 2017 reform allows for the construction of one ADU per single-family home, without earlier regulations that builders viewed as roadblocks. Oregon passed a similar bill in 2017 requiring qualifying cities and counties to enable the construction of these units, while Washington, D.C. relaxed requirements in 2016. In June, the Seattle City Council approved legislation to streamline the ADU building process. 
the rise in ADU permit applications since these changes points to pent-up demand, and it goes on to why they're building them and all this sort of thing, and has tells a lovely story about someone who built one, and and how it's nice to have the in-laws right there, and all this sort of thing, and the story goes on and on and on. <clears throat> and it also talks about the, you know, ability for people to, you know, rent something that's small, efficient, cheap, and doesn't have all those regulatory hurdles that I mentioned. The point is, in a nation <clears throat> that has a housing crisis, especially around its major cities, it's, I mean, it's, it's good news that the, um, it's good news that cities are finally starting to embrace ADUs and they're starting to embrace different housing philosophy. Now, obviously the better thing would be to start rezoning some of that single family residential and allow more dense residential to be built. There's a huge demand for apartments of all sizes, from micro apartments, which can be as little as 400 square feet, all the way up to large apartments. And the nice thing about those buildings, and a lot of them got built in Seattle when I lived there, which is one of the reasons rent started to go down, is like 100,000 new units came online is that with an apartment building, because of the multiple rent process, those buildings can be profitable, and they don't necessarily have to be luxury either. Or, if they do build a luxury building, the wealthy people will move, leaving the old building for not-so-rich people to move in. So, it, increasing supply can radically change a housing market. The problem with housing is it takes a long time to get new supply online. So... It's, um, the, the granny flats, this guy's building the kits, they can be built quickly, cheaply, easily. They can be put up in just a few months. Um, it, it's a fascinating, um, process to, to watch and, and see how people create those new solutions. And I think especially in a nation of single family homes, I think we're going to see a lot more properties and a lot more cities, particularly large cities, embracing small cottages on people's property that they can rent out to family, friends, or even strangers. I knew people that rented their ADUs out to all sorts of people. So, it's an evolving part of housing policy. I, I felt like it was, a, it was a good story to share and gave me a chance to have a good conversation about um, housing policy and, and what we're facing and how we need to change it so that everyone has a reasonable chance to achieve housing. The fact that we have as many homeless people or housing insecure people as we do or that whole families um, have nowhere to live or you have, the, you have working poor people that have a full-time job but cannot afford housing, you know, anywhere they live is a true travesty in my mind of our time and it's time to ch to reconceive housing from just single family houses to think about all the different types of housing that are possible and to have duplexes and triplexes and condos which can be a great entry to a first house um all sorts of things so to allow all those types of housing to be built so that people can have a realistic chance at at you know having shelter 
you know, the one, I mean, humans need at least food, water, and shelter, um, preferably companionship, but at least food, water, shelter are pretty essential. And right now, the challenge of getting those things is in the extreme. Um, there's, you know, and even for those that can't afford housing, is taking up a disproportionate amount of income. There are, pe- there are a lot of people that end up spending half their income just on shelter. And it is no wonder why stores are dying, the retail apocalypse is happening, the economy is changing, people are racking up debt, all this sort of thing, is quite simply because so much money is flowing into the pockets of people, of either mortgage companies, people that own homes that are far overpriced, or into the landlords of people that are renting. And we are also becoming a nation of renters. That's another big change happening in housing policy. More Americans rent than own their own home. And that's been a huge reversal of a trend that started happening after World War II. More and more people simply can't afford to buy. There are no 100,000... Two hundred thousand dollar starter homes. <clears throat> Most places, unless you live truly in the middle of nowhere, you're not getting anything for less than three hundred and fifty thousand dollars. And for many people, the the long commute to work usually in a if you can afford to buy a house you usually have a job that pays enough that job is most likely in a major city unless you work in certain industries people just you know it's okay you can buy a house but you have to live two hours away and some people are doing that some people are looking for jobs in smaller cities to get out of the high price of the big cities because they have no other option um and some people say oh haha millennials are finally moving to the suburbs where the hell else are they supposed to go like we we've we've built the country in a certain way. There is not enough housing in major cities where I'm sure a lot of millennials, even those with families, yes, would like to live. So people are moving to the suburbs. People are moving to smaller towns and cities if they have a flexible job that offers that sort of thing. This is the type of thing thing that's going on. We can mitigate a lot of these changes by um by changing housing policy and it's not something we can do at the federal level it has to start at the local level so if you're listening to this and you want to see a change in housing policy in your neighborhood now would be a great time to start hitting up your city council meetings going to your county commissioner meetings looking for housing advocacy organizations and seeing how you can get involved if this you're passionate about this issue and want to get involved about it Um, As a filler story, before we talk about the California power outages and wildfires, I wanted to quickly note, and I found the story last week, and I want to quickly note, the pop artist Kesha has suffered another major setback in her ongoing legal battles with the producer Dr. Luke and his defamation thing. Um, It says here the New York Court of Appeals... Um, confirmed to E! News on the 26th of September, she was denied a motion for re-argument and a motion to appeal the decision to Albany's appellate court. According to court documents, her countersuit against Dr. Luke was denied on the court's assertion that the appeal was palpably insufficient and devoid of merit. Furthermore, the court ruled the singer's counterclaims were partly speculative, contradicted by her own allegations that she had continued performing under the agreements. Um... This is the third time the singer has attempted to pursue a countersuit against the producer's own suit, in which he accuses her of defamation 
and breach of contract. This legal battle has been going on since 2014. Um, he claimed that he drugged her and called her fat, said that he said the allegations were defamatory and untrue, and uh, <clears throat> and filed a countersuit seeking substantial damages for this malicious conduct. Um, she dropped the sexual abuse claims in 2016, but Dr. Luke is pursuing his defamation case. And of course, a passel of celebrities have come out to support Kesha and the plight of apparently what it's like to work with Dr. Luke and other stories about him have come out. So I just want to mention that quickly in passing. I shared it over at Rouge's, <clears throat> um, that, um, yeah, this, you know, this sort of thing, that story is still ongoing. So if you're following the Kesha lawsuit, that's the latest update on it. So it looks like her countersuit is going nowhere, and now they just have to adjudicate Dr. Luke's original lawsuit. I feel sorry for her, though. I don't think. I think she has released some new music. There's not been an album or anything, and likely won't be until her legal battles are solved. So it's, um, it, it's... It's difficult. I hope she, I hope she gets through the legal battles and then gets her um, career back on track. That would be the most ideal <clears throat> ideal scenario. Um, another kind of story happening out west is um, the uh, <laughs> in California um, Pacific Gas and Electric. Um, proactively shut off power to almost a million residents citing a severe wind event. Their power lines are responsible for the campfire um, that happened last year and burnt down tons of people's homes, killed several people, was a terrible thing. It all started from PG&E power lines. So they, <clears throat> when they found out there was going to be a wind event, they proactively shut off power. Um, this has left, obviously, hundreds of thousands of people without lights, phones, or medical equipment, according to Slate News. Now, um, <clears throat> they, you know, basically they decided that, uh, um, they decided not to bother letting anyone know about this sort of thing. They decided to do it so people literally were, you know, going about their lives and the power went out. And when they called in to report it, they basically were told there's a high wind event. It could cause a fire. You get no power until the the weather has passed. And the power was out for days. And I believe in some areas is still out, which means it's been like a week. You can't cook if you don't have gas. The food in your fridge is gone long time ago. If you have a medical need, you, you have to go somewhere where there is power because so it's a medical need. You know, hostels have to run on generators and they have to get fuel for those generators. I mean, it's it's a really poor handling of the situation. I love how the story ends because they said, 
Um, the history of negligence explains why, quote, Californians have a toxic relationship with PG&E, as Glazer wrote. Shutting off the power might have been the right safety call in these conditions, which Los Angeles Times editorial points out are the result of several factors, including climate change, expansion to rural areas, and how forests themselves are managed. But the conditions include factors that weren't in PNG's control, too. It didn't have to get to this point. Um, it says that... Uh, um, apparently some of the power lines that sparked the campfire last year had been around since 1921, and they were so old and sad and tired that when a fire came along, um, the, the towers just burnt and failed and the resulting, you know, power on the ground w was sparking and caused the fire to necessarily be worse. <clears throat> so rather than work at replacing and updating towers and making them fire resistant and all this sort of thing um i guess they're just gonna start randomly shutting off power and not telling anyone for no good reason so um that was that's kind of been an ongoing difficult story i believe power is still out for some people in northern california because of the fire risk and danger um which has been obviously exacerbated by the weather changes resulting um, from how our climate is changing. So that I was something important to, to, to highlight. And this is also gets into where I talk about adaptability. This is a situation where PG&E needs to le learn how to adapt to the situations and the conditions they have, not the ones they wish they had. It may be time to bury some power lines, put up better towers, cover them differently, develop a different way of handling this rather than just cutting people off and telling them, eh, we'll turn the power back on when we think it's safe to do so. Who knows when that could be? So it it's not been handled well, and I imagine that there'll be some very serious conversations um, happening at PG&E on this matter. So now that we've covered that, we are going to jump into um, Ukraine scandal, impeachment 2020, and Brexit. We're going to start with Brexit because we have some exciting new news on the Brexit front. So this week in Brexit, we had a major breakthrough. Um, the... Um, I had a story about the Johnson and uh, Vardikar of Ireland having a productive Brexit discussion, and that was productive, and it um, resulted in a new deal um, with alternative arrangements for Northern Ireland, as described before, involving... Um, border crossing checkpoints that were nowhere near the border to reduce the chance of violence and destroying the Good Friday Agreement. Um, however, <laughs> um, the EU has passed the deal with the new arrangements to the political declaration. And uh, the only downside to this is the DUP, the largest party in Northern Ireland, um, has said they're not going to back the deal. Now, why does that matter? <laughs> the Conservative Party, the Tories, in Parliament, do not have a majority 
at all right now. And the majority that they did have was dependent on a coalition with the DUP. If the DUP is not going to back it, that reduces the number of conservatives that are going to vote for it, which means Johnson has to go across the aisle and replace every DUP vote with a Labour vote, because Lord knows the Scottish Nationalist Party is not voting for this. So don't even bother calling the SNP. Like, that's just, that's a waste of everybody's time. So SNP is going to vote against it. That's 50, 60 votes. Um, you've got to go find people in labor to vote for this deal and get it over the line. There is no assurance or idea that this deal can pass through British Parliament. And because of laws that have been passed, it has to pass Parliament in order for it to happen. Keep in mind, it's the 19th of October. In October. Britain is supposed to leave the EU in 11, 12 days. And, uh, yeah, that's, there's a lot of work to be done between now and then. I will find it interesting if that, if this deal actually gets passed by Parliament. I have a sneaking suspicion there may be enough just overall fatigue given the Brexit process that people may opt for the deal if it's just good enough in order to end the madness. And I understand that. This process has taken almost four years. There have been multiple extensions. There's the possibility of a hard Brexit. I don't see... Unless there's something really bad in the agreement, and I have not... I have not seen a deep analysis of the agreement. Unless there's something really bad, my, my guess is that Parliament will probably, unless something's really bad, Parliament's probably gonna, is probably going to go ahead with this deal. The deal will probably happen... And then Britain will leave with a deal on the 31st of October. And the crazy nightmare that is Brexit will only be beginning. Because then the new way of doing business between Britain and the rest of the EU, keeping in mind Britain is the, Europe, is the European continent's second largest economy behind Germany, <clears throat> um, will begin... The EU will begin life without Britain. Britain will begin life without the EU. And they're going to have to work on a free trade agreement almost immediately. I think in the, the Mays deal, they had two years to do it, which was deemed to be impossible. I don't believe that has changed, which means they still have to pull off a free trade deal and an agreement within two years um, because of how the transition out of the single market and all that thing is going to work. Um, I imagine TLDR News will do a video about the new agreement and what has been reached and what the changes are here soon. So if you're if you're not following TLDR News, you should. They're an awesome YouTube channel, um, and they just went like all independent and opened up a funding mechanism and all of this sort of thing. So definitely support them if you can, and. Um, 
and uh, they'll probably do a video going in-depth into the agreement, so definitely be looking for that. I have not seen, as again, I said, I've, I've not seen into the analysis, but the, the beginning of the Brexit, Brexit's not over, is my overall point. Just because this agreement's going to happen and Britain might really actually leave the EU on October 31st does not mean Brexit's not going, it doesn't mean Brexit's going to not happen or that it's, or it's going to be over. There's going to be a lot of hurdles ahead in trying to undo 40 years of economic policy between Britain and the rest of Europe. Keeping in mind, <clears throat> the common market was started in the early 70s. And so supply chains and all sorts of things have been predicated on a common open market trading between Britain and the EU. And all of those have to be rethought out, reconsidered and redone in the light of Britain leaving the European Union. <clears throat> and that it's going to be a tough time ahead for Great Britain. There's just no two ways about it. There's, it's going to be a tough and difficult time moving forward for everyone involved. And so many things were not thought about or considered in this whole process. And, you know, just because the question of what kind of Brexit gets settled doesn't mean that we're going to be free of Brexit problems moving forward. So last week, it was barely mentioned in the news because of the Ukraine scandal. Trump lost a bunch of court cases. Okay. It was a bloodbath for if you were the Trump uh, legal office. Um, and here is kind of here's why. So the um, courts blocked the funding mechanism for the wall. They were taking it from the defense budget. The court said, no, that's unconstitutional because it violates congressional legislation. That didn't happen. Uh, Trump's new immigration policy, trying to change the asylum rules, was also struck down in court. Um, the uh, uh, court case in regard to Mazars, his accounting for, for, firm, turning over his taxes, was also struck down in court. So Trump just had just a. I think someone calculated, calculated he lost five court cases in one day. Obviously, there will be appeals on Trump's taxes. His lawyers did get a stay with another court. <clears throat> almost right away um and but it was it was just not a good day for trump land every time he tries to move one of his crazier policies forward it just doesn't end well for him the sad reality is that trump is either going he's going to do one of two things he's going to either learn to start complying with the law or he's going to go down in flames or some combination of both now admittedly it's hard to think that he's going to go down in flames because Trump never in his life has really ever had a whole lot of consequences. He's been able to buy, sell, spend, waste other people's money his whole life. Um, he's been able to license his name basically as a professional celebrity famous person. He has been able to do whatever he wanted with whoever, however, based upon his own charm and bravado. Um, and to some great he has gotten away with that somewhat as the president. That's certainly how he got into office. But for better or for worse, sadly and unfortunately, um, <clears throat> he's destroyed a lot of the institutions of the government and left the Kurds on the side of the road with no help 
and leaving them to be slaughtered and ISIS fighters to escape all along the way. We talked about in depth with the Kurdish story last week and nothing terribly new has developed on that front except for the fact that military is trying to figure out how they're going to get our troops out of Syria because they were pinned down and they're having to bomb the base that we built there so the Russians couldn't use it. There's also 50 tactical nuclear weapons in Turkey and the Department of Energy is contemplating how to get those out of Turkey because the relationship with Turkey is not so great right now. Um, <clears throat> so multiple moving parts in this scandal and he's getting it from both sides, both Republicans and Democrats are unhappy with his decision to to do this and there's two interesting sides with that there's one side that says you know well he's going up against the globalists who want to waste american lives and treasures in every different war and he's getting us out of of, of these wars and bringing the troops home and in the, the now infamous discussion with Nancy Pelosi on this matter, he, she asked him, is Saudi Arabia home? And he said, well, they're paying us. So apparently, now, if you want American troops to show up, um, you better have money. Because apparently we're now running a mercenary operation here. Um, it's a new way to raise revenue, apparently. Um, I speak sarcastically, of course. Um, it's just, it's just a sad state of affairs. Um, Trump spat with leader Pelosi and others over the Syria policy, leading him to tweeting out a series of still pictures claiming that nervous Nancy was having a meltdown after Nancy Pelosi said Trump had a meltdown was absolutely hilarious. And the picture has now become iconic because there's literally Nancy Pelosi, the only woman in a room full of white men. People have mentioned not a minority to be seen, which is a sad state of government. Separate issue, literally. Um, the primary force of defense against this man is one very brave woman who is leading a very tenacious impeachment inquiry. I should also mention, speaking of impeachment inquiry, we lost a giant of American politics this week. Elijah Cummings, representative of Maryland of the Baltimore area, died peacefully at his hospital. He'd been having ongoing illnesses. I didn't even know he was having illnesses. It was not in the news. Um, but he, he died on uh, Wednesday. Wednesday morning. Um, very, very sad. Sad loss for the House representative. Sad loss for America. He was doing great work on the impeachment inquiry, and he was only 68. So that's a sad, sad loss. Um for everyone involved. He was chairman of the Oversight Committee. That's a lot of institutional knowledge to lose. Um, I'm sure Nancy Pelosi will find someone suitable to be taking over that committee right away because of the impeachment inquiry. Um, but uh, it's, uh, yeah, it, that also happened happened this week. Impeachment is moving forward quickly. Um, I found this great story from Ozzy.com about the five impeachment witnesses to watch. They are... Rudy Giuliani, for obvious reasons, he's Trump's lawyer. The last one ended up in jail. <clears throat> Kurt Volker, the special U.S. envoy to Ukraine, who is going to be uh, testifying to Congress here soon. The next person is Marie Yovanovitch, 
which already testified before Congress and absolutely tore things up with her talking about how um talking about how Trump and was handling the Ukraine scandal and how Trump was using American military aid to try to get Ukraine to start things against Biden and possibly other Democrats. We're going to get to that in a second. The other one um, is the mysterious whistleblower, um, a male CIA officer who basically started this latest um, impeachment process by saying that... um, uh, that by saying that this type of foreign policy was going on. And the last person who has been sharp in his drawing away from Trump since he was unceremoniously fired and shown the door is John Bolton. Um, Bolton apparently had a huge issue with Trump inviting the Taliban to Camp David to talk peace in Afghanistan so we could leave there. Um... And John Bolton has tons of experience in government. Those of you old enough to remember the George W. Bush years will know John Bolton well. He was one of the people that architected the invasion of Iraq. Um, And Bolton um, kind of saw Trump as his chance to kind of get back into power. And he did so. And Bolton was pushing for war with Iran, which Trump was very much resistant against. And... Uh, Bolton was also, um, very much, um, kind of at odds with Trump. And he's been out of the administration for a couple weeks, and Bolton has already caused a ruckus with exposing what exactly the Trump administration has gotten up to. So, all of this, everything we've learned from Yovanovitch and Volcker has reinforced how much of a mafia operation the Trump administration is. And I'm not surprised it's a mafia operation. I really am not. Trump has had deep mob ties forever. You don't do real estate in New York, particularly 70s and 80s New York, without being involved with the mob. You just don't do it. They control the construction firms. They control the contracting firms. Real estate in New York does not move unless there's something mob attached to it. To this day, doesn't happen. And that just, so to me, I'm not surprised Trump mobster, call me when something new happens. Um, The, I think the surprising part, what people don't necessarily, I think what's so kind of weird and shocking, and someone mentioned this on Twitter and I thought it was interesting, was that I don't think Americans are used to scandals happening right out in front, which transitions into the last round I'm going to talk about today, is that everything that has happened, Trump has said on television, he said in speeches, he said in phone calls, it's all coming out into the public. Yesterday, Mick Mulvaney, the acting press secretary, got in front of reporters and basically admitted that any time foreign policy is being conducted quid pro quo with countries is exactly what's going to go on in terms of if you don't get if if you don't do these things you're not going to get your military aid and not not good things like i mean that, that does sometimes happen so with military aid oftentimes will have requirements <clears throat> by saying you know you must 
have these corruption controls or you must have um, you must distribute the money this way or these people can't be involved or you have to involve this NGO or whatever have you. That's not what was done here. The quid pro quo here is that Trump asked for something personal that would benefit him personally to a foreign leader in return for federal aid to a country in trouble. That's the problem. So while Mick Mulvaney is right, yeah, we do ask countries for things when it comes to military aid. Here's what we don't do. We don't ask them for personal favors to the people offering the aid. That's what we don't do. <clears throat> I have the story here. Because not only did Mulvaney ed announce that and just let that fly in front of cameras and reporters and everyone just being like, so you just admitted to everything. Do we even, like, you know, what's the point of having an impeachment inquiry? We might as well just start today, like, with votes and things, because, you know, who cares? However, according to this story from Slate, one of the things that he wanted Ukraine to do is to find a DNC Democrat server that would vindicate the Russian interference in the U.S. election and make it seem like the DNC had the whole thing rigged all along and that really it was the Democrats that were the criminals <clears throat> rather than the Russians. Now, intelligence agencies have said, we have an election interference problem. This is a well-known thing. Internationally, we have a Russian election interference problem. You know, this is well-known. Um, but what Trump wants is he wants the Ukrainians to find some sort of server or some sort of proof that the Democrats were crooked, the Russians were uninvolved, so that he can be vindicated and shown that he was right all along the way. And that, so it wasn't just merely a, hey, would you start an investigation on Hunter Biden so I can hurt Joe Biden because he's running for president? Apparently this goes much deeper. Trump is trying to undo the last three years of reporting in regards to Russian interference in elections, even though if anyone has read the Mueller report would know it had much, much less to do with meddling and more to do with out-and-out out propaganda effort by the FSB to influence the American election. And that, uh, apparently, Trump is trying to find some way, somehow, and apparently the answer is in Ukraine, to accomplish this. Apparently the reason why they're looking in Ukraine is because um, of the DNC servers, apparently the individual that was in charge of of um, running them or building them um, is connected to a Ukrainian company. Um, let me find, let me be accurate with this um, and let me find what it, it says. Um, it's, it's an email server and... It, oh, it says here, CrowdStrike is the private security company that initially found Russia responsible for the hack. There was a DNC server hack, emails, John Podesta, we remember this. For the hack, a finding that has been confirmed by U.S. law enforcement. Despite online suggestions to the contrary, the company is not owned by anyone from Ukraine, and the hack investigation reportedly involved 331 servers and computers, not a single server. 
CrowdStrike used imaging to create a forensically useful copy of the DNC setup, a copy that was then shared with the FBI, rather than taking custody of the actual machines that were targeted. This is apparently a not suspicious or unusual method of investigating cyber attacks. According to um, different... Uh, uh, apparently Russia's on this idea that the 30,000 missing emails um, that were deleted, that she didn't turn over to the State Department, all this type of thing, somehow Trump has got it in Ukraine. Trump has got it in his head that all the missing information that he needs to vindicate himself and the Russians from election interference is located in Ukraine. And that's what started all of this. That started the quid pro quo. That started this whole problem. That's how we got to the, oh my God, it must be in Ukraine. And apparently that is what started all this and why Trump is trying to get Ukraine to perform an investigation to find out the who, what, where, when, and why to finally prove that he was right all along and to ultimately vindicate him um, in regards to the 2016 election, I guess, and make himself feel more legitimate that he was right all along. I will say after reading this, and I'm going to close on this note because we're reaching the top of the hour. I will say this. Trump is one of two things. He is either one of the absolute smartest 4D chess playing people on the planet and I cannot figure out his moves. Or... He is a complete and utter narcissistic buffoon. Now, I've read some things that I'm necessarily going to talk about on this show. I've had people bring up certain points to me about certain things that I'll admit make some sense. Which is why I say he's either doing something incredibly clever or we have a huge, huge problem. Impeachment itself didn't move forward much this week. <clears throat> Kurds in Syria kind of sucked all the oxygen out of the room that way. Um, so, again, like I said, not too much happened on the impeachment inquiry uh, this week. There was a rumor of a vote um, that, uh, that may have, that was kind of up for grabs. Um, on whether they were going to vote to do an impeachment inquiry or just proceed with one, Nancy Pelosi announced that there would not be um, any any vote. Um, so that they're proceeding with the impeachment inquiry. I imagine now with the new evidence coming out that we're going to be getting um, some more movement on the impeachment inquiry and more hearings after Yovanovitch and all of this this week. Um... And you know what I didn't cover, and I really should cover, but I'm not going to because we're already so deep into the show, is the debate. On, on Tuesday, there was a debate. Um, it, was, it was good. Um, I might schedule a little breakdown for next week because um, we, we didn't really get to 2020. We talked about impeachment um, and housing and a whole bunch of other fun stuff. Um, so maybe next week in the 2020 update, um, I'll grab some polling data. We'll talk about the debate. Um, Biden had a good night. Kamala Harris needed a better night than she had. Buttigieg had a good night. Warren had a great night, but she took a lot of incoming. And Bernie Sanders looks great. And uh, 
he was at a huge, huge fundraiser on Friday night in New York City, and AOC and most of the squad, except Diana Press, is endorsing him. So next week, we will get back to the 2020 race. I'll talk about my notes from the debate, because I did live tweet, of course. And uh, and we'll all get the latest polling data um, after the debate because there was some minor movements in the polling data. I'll gather all that together. We'll talk debate next week. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. And I will see you next week. That's all for this episode of the Cameron Journal podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Visit us online at CameronJournal.com. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And I love to talk to my followers and listeners. So please feel free to uh, get us on social media at Cameron Cowan on Twitter. And we'll see you next time on the Cameron Journal podcast.